Welcome to the Codcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and my guests today are two important leaders of the state's cultural sector, Vicki Spruill, the president and CEO of the New England Aquarium, and Tim Ritchie, president of the Museum of Science. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Bruce. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Bruce. Great to be here. Um, I imagine both of you have had quite a shock the last couple months as you've been dealing with COVID-19. Um, Tim, you're probably in quite a lot of shock because you just started your job in February. And Vicki, you're the veteran at least. You joined the aquarium <laughs> just over two years ago. Can you fill us in? Let's start with you, Vicki. Can you fill us in on what's happened at your institution? Well, it's been, uh, it's been a wild ride over the last many weeks, for sure. It's hard to believe that we are approaching the 12th week of being closed. We closed our doors uh, like Tim did on the, I think you were the 12th, Tim, and we were the 13th of March. Um, you know, I've done a lot of scenario planning in my career, but never with no revenue coming in and no end in sight to this pandemic. And so the, I think I would summarize this period of time as just one of great uncertainty that has, I think, challenged not just me and our institution, but the world in trying to figure out how to navigate a pandemic of this depth and breadth and scale. So for us, we made the decision to close. We knew that was the, the sensible thing to do. And I remember saying to the trustees at the time, um, I think we're gonna have an equally hard or maybe more difficult decision to make when we open, because we just don't know, um, you know, again, so much has, uh, uh, we, there's still so much uncertainty. So we've, uh, we've had uh, significant reductions uh, in, in expenses because we've lost 80% of our revenue overnight. We generate about 80% of our revenue from ticket sales and events that dried up immediately. And so we've um, spent the last many weeks uh, with a combination of expense cutting and fundraising and applying for SBA loans and uh, getting extensions from our bank, and then on the positive side, um, launching a, a number of uh, virtual reality programs, daily programs that have kept our visitor, visitors connected. So it's been a whole range of things all in a very concentrated period of time. And then of course, in our case, we can close our doors to the public, um, but we have to still maintain the 20,000 animals that we have. And so we've had a, an incredible team of what I call my first responders who have been going in every single day taking care of our our animals. Tim, how about you? Bruce, very similar story. I, I think what I would say, maybe focusing where Vicki left off, is that it's been a tremendous time to focus on how we can serve the community digitally. Uh, the, the business challenge has been terrible, and it's something we can talk about in a second. But what we've learned during this downside is how much we can expand our access at a very low cost. So we are reaching people like we never have before. We've had 200,000 people tune into our digital side of what we're doing. We're conducting Spanish language programming. These are things we probably would not have done if we'd not been shut down. So if there's any positive here, it's understanding the power of what we can do digitally and it's also understanding the power of some cross-functional teams that frankly would not have been forced to work together if we hadn't had this moment. So there are a lot of possibilities in this moment. I don't want to 
uh, sweep aside the notion that our business models have been challenged, but there are some huge possibilities in this moment that we're trying to explore. So you both are very big institutions, you know, physically in a way. And I, I, I hear you sort of reaching out digitally. Um, everybody's sort of working now from home or, or, you know, in remote locations. But, and you guys are saying you can do that to some degree, but you depend a lot on people coming to your institutions. Uh, my son is uh, 22 years old, so he's a little bit past the age, but I remember taking him to both institutions all the time when he was younger. And it was a hands-on experience, particularly at the Museum of Science, but also at the aquarium, reaching into pools and touching yeah. things and, and being around all sorts of people. I, I sort of worry, I'm sure you guys worry too, you know, until there's a vaccine or some way to deal with this, is that gonna be a, a bygone era? Bygone era? How, how's that, how are you gonna deal with that? We have about 64 people spending all day every day thinking about that question. Probably 4,000 man hours trying to figure out how do you have a interactive experience without being a hands-on experience? How do you have an engaging experience that is clean? How do you do social distancing and masks? I could go on and on, but I would say it is possible still in our institution to be interactive without being hands-on. Technology will enable us to do that. So when we open, for instance, you'll be able to interact with a hologram and ask questions. You won't touch it, obviously. You won't but there are interactive things we can do. Does that mean the visitor experience will be different? Yes, it will be different. Does that mean it's possible? Yes, it will be possible. So those, that's what we're thinking about now. And I do believe we can deliver high customer value, but it will be different. And I would build on that. I agree with all of the above. We're, we've got multidisciplinary teams thinking through all of this as well, but I would, you know, in our case, we have this magnificent central giant ocean tank that people observe. That part of our facility is not something where you're touching and you're, you're being inspired and awed. I think one of my favorite stories from these last many weeks has been our observing the people who are seeing our harbor seals out on the main plaza there where, you know, so many people are taking advantage of the harbor walk and um, I think trying to draw some inspiration and levity from somewhere. And so my hope is that we can continue to provide that with more limited numbers, with different kind of access to the building, with fewer people in at the same time. But we really want them to just observe these interactions among these magnificent creatures that, we're I, I mean, to me, that's what it's that inspiration that leads to better understanding that then leads to policy change and action. So my question uh, presupposed that you both will reopen at some point in time. Uh, obviously, that's a little bit of an uncertainty that you talked about. Um, when, Tim, let, let's start with you. When do you expect, uh, or do you have a good sense, uh, when do you expect to reopen? Yeah, there's a, two answers to that question. We are currently in phase three of the governor's plan. And, and if everything goes according to plan, we would open roughly speaking in July. And that's what we're planning on. We're planning on opening in July. Who knows though, there's an independent question about whether it's really safe to do so. So we have a four part sort of balanced scorecard score on assessing that. Is it safe for the visitors? Is it safe for employees? Can we do our mission? Can we do our product? And does it make sense financially? All four of those, those things come together. 
currently we're projecting on opening at a limited fashion in July. But just by way of reference, the zoos had a, were in a different phase and they opened this week. So depending on the circumstances, you can, we are hoping to open in July. And I think, Vicki, you probably have your yeah, own. Yeah, we're, we're in the same boat, um, but again, so much uncertainty because the governor's plan obviously presupposes that we go through these three-week phases without any hitches. And I don't think any of us can predict uh, what it's going to take to step from phase one to phase two to phase three. So like Tim, we are mapping multiple scenarios with different start dates and with different levels of visitors coming in because that's the other variable. While I believe people are excited about coming back to institutions like ours and there's a lot of data out there that suggests uh, an increased intention to visit places like ours, you know, I don't know if people will actually show up at the levels they used to, likely not. So we are um, getting very good at modeling multiple types of scenarios and each one has different financial implications. So I think both of our institutions and our teams are working, you know, 24-7 on all of these models. So, Vicki, you mentioned that 80% of your revenue comes from ticket sales. Um, yeah. So let's assume you do open in July. I'm just trying to give our listeners a sense how financially damaged are you by this long period of shutdown? And, and how do you recover from that? So, you know, I think all of us have taken a significant hit, not just us, but all of the cultural institutions in our city. And what I like to describe this as is a runway. We are trying to extend our runway for the longest possible time such that we can begin to see visitors come back at some regular pace. But we are being very conservative uh, in our projections because again, there are so many uncertainties and we wanna be really sure that when we open, people feel safe and are safe. And not just our, not just our visitors, but our staff included. And so, you know, we, this is, if, if just imagine if, um, if we had 4,000 visitors in a day previous to the pandemic, we're now talking about maybe 1,000 people a day for multiple months. And so, of course, this has an impact. Uh, and we're relying on, on philanthropy, on, on government grants, on our own resources to get us through this period. And how is that, uh, before I go to you, Tim, how, how is that working? Is philanthropy coming through? And, and sort of what government grants, you mentioned SBA, but what government grants are you hoping for or you know, seeking? Yeah, so um, we have multiple parts of our business that, that I don't think some of your listeners may appreciate. So there's obviously the main building, but we also have our Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life, which is our science and research arm. And um, that's mostly government grant funded and private philanthropy funded. And we are not seeing much change there, fortunately. The impact on our research is whether or not our scientists will be able to get out into the field and do aerial surveys of right whales, for example, in small planes where they're contained in, in small spaces. So that part of our business, um, uh, you know, feels pretty strong. It's the, it's the direct ticket visitor piece that, that is the most impacted. So 
We did receive one of the SBA loans in that initial tranche, and there it doesn't appear as though there will be additional federal money coming down the path for our institutions. Many of us banded together and lobbied uh, for additional relief funding, and we were hopeful that uh, this $6 billion carve-out would have been made available to uh, institutions like ours, but the $6 billion carve-out turned out to be a $5 million carve-out. And so that, that was disappointing, even after 140 chambers of commerce around the country and all of our Boston City Councilors, everyone signed on to um, supporting this. It just doesn't look like it's coming to fruition. So I think we're, we're not as positive about additional federal resources, except that it does appear as though there may be federal money coming to the states to offset obviously lost tax revenue. And so there may be some additional help there. So um, our donors, our trustees uh, uh, have been so generous. It's been very uplifting to watch that, to see this Mission Forward Fund that we launched grow. Um, and uh, so we're just, we, you know, we can't let our foot off the, the gas and uh, we believe that we're an iconic, beloved institution, and so far people are stepping up to help us. Tim, um, what about you? And if you could start your answer with a little bit about probably the greater shock you even faced. Um, you, you just started in your position in February, and then the next month, whammo, probably your whole outlook for what you were stepping into changed. Um, financially, What? how has it changed your institution, and, and how are you going to find your way out of this? So financially, we're at about 55% earned revenue. So not, not quite as much as what Vicki is facing. Still a huge shock. And to be honest with you, Bruce, I almost welcome this moment. Not really. But, but it's a time of reckoning for all of our business models. And I knew coming into this institution that we were, in fact, too dependent on earned revenue. And as you said, wham. I really got the big shock, and it happened far sooner. But this is the time for philanthropy. It is the time for building our endowments. It is the time to get away from too much earned revenue. So if you had asked me three months ago, what's the biggest problem the Museum of Science is facing? I would have said three months ago, or four months ago, or six months ago, it is the business model. So this now has accelerated that focus on focusing on philanthropy and the endowment. But the other thing I like to say is this. Strangely, this is a public science moment like we haven't had in my entire lifetime. This is our time. If there were ever a time for the philanthropic community to support public science, it is now. So as bad as it is, it still is our moment to step into it and to say science has become public and participatory like never before. Everyone who wears a mask is a citizen scientist. Everyone who maintains social distancing is a citizen scientist. Where but these cultural institutions can we have a conversation with the community about the values that can build a science literate society? So I'm not gonna step away from this moment and wait for all the earned revenue to return, but actually to appeal to the philanthropic community, the foundations in this community to say, let's build a scientifically literate community 
they can rise up to the next coronavirus challenge. Well, and I'd even, I'd love to build on that and take it even a step further and say, let's learn from these lessons that we've uh, gotten from this pandemic and apply them to some other big environmental realities. The whole world came together around this pandemic and we face enormous threats on our planet and certainly in the city of Boston where you know, sea level is expected to rise three feet in the next 50 years. We are a major urban waterfront city and we need to be coming together in some new and different ways and looking at science, listening to science, stop fighting about how we got here and help educate folks to, to some of these new realities post pandemic. Those are those are very good points, um, and it seems like if Tim, I'm hearing you correctly, and Vicky, that the your that's sort of your selling point to philanthropy. We provide a very important purpose here. The one problem I work for a nonprofit too. We're all all of that sector is sort of in the same boat, having to justify what they do and the importance of it, and and appealing for support. Um, it's it's a difficult time. It's one thing to, for you two to be doing that, but it's when everybody is sort of in that boat that it becomes a big challenge. Um, how do you see, obviously you're trying to distinguish yourselves as you make that case, but think broadly, how does, it, how does this impact the nonprofit sector in general? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I actually almost never think there's a lack of money I think there is probably enough money for everyone. The real question is what difference are you making? And, and if, if you're making a real difference in the lives of the community, a difference that needs to be made, science literacy is just one of the places where in our particular case, in Vicki's case, we're making a difference. The other one is this giant problem of access and the, the whole question of who can provide an opportunity for the next generation to actually succeed in a world that's driven by science and technology. And then other nonprofits have their own uh, missions. And the question is, if they are really changing lives and changing communities, I firmly believe, I fully believe there's enough money out there for us. Uh, how we do that, I don't think it's a zero sum game here. I really do believe there's enough money. We just have to persuade people that what we're doing is worth it and it's in line with their values. Vicki? Well, and having, uh, you know, I, I served as, was fortunate to serve as CEO of the Council on Foundations prior to joining um, the New England Aquarium. And one thing I know for sure is that money follows good and timely ideas and, you know, philanthropy. This is, this, this is the moment <laughs> that philanthropy was made for. Uh, and, and we have taken more of a conservation sort of advocacy orientation to the New England Aquarium. We've always had the science and research baked into our, into our, into our work, but um, it's, it's not just about educating people. It's about what, how do we create this next generation of people who are going to really be caring about how to protect our planet? So um, does that mean there's no role for government and government support to play? Uh, I know I know there was a general appeal, as you mentioned, Vicki, that to the federal government to provide support to cultural institutions uh, through a broad network, and it sort of fizzled at the federal level. Um, are you sort of giving up on federal and state support 
Or well, we never, I, I never give up. <laughs> We're never giving up. You know, I think what is sometimes misunderstood for nonprofit cultural organizations specifically uh, is how much we contribute to the economy. You know, $2.3 billion, 71,000 full-time equivalent jobs in Massachusetts. These, we, are, we are a significant driver to the economy. Now that was pre-pandemic, but I think we have to be advocating for ourselves and be recognized as, you know, one of these legs of the stool that makes Boston the kind of city that it is um, with its deep intellect and our institutions are, are sort of civic anchors to the city and we, we have to keep making that case. But I, and so we participate in lots of other associations with the bigger nonprofit community because we are all in this together uh, a rising, I like to say a rising tide lifts all boats. The ocean puns are never ending. But um, I do think this is a moment for all of us to band together um, so that we're not forgotten as a sector. I would agree. And Bruce, I would say that the partnership with government is in three ways. The, the time for government to be a funder is coming again. Right now, perhaps, of course, a lot of problems have to be solved that are immediate and emergent. But what kind of community we want to be is a collective impact question. And government is a big part of that answer. But I would say there are two other things that government needs to do right now. And one is to continue to set a high example for the value of science in solving problems. And you see leaders not upholding that. It means individuals will not celebrate science. They will actually degrade science, which you see happening throughout our country. So, so the role of government elevating science is important. And I think, I think also the other thing is seeing cultural institutions as their partner to do the things they want to do to build the community. So it's not just about money. It's also about leadership and the idea of bringing us to the table for a partnership to create the kind of community we want to live in. And before we close, I wanted to just sort of get a little sense of where you are right now. I, I imagine both of you have had to pare back your staffs during this tough period. Um, I, I know I've read about the New England Aquarium, Vicki, having to cut staff. Can you tell me where you are in that? And then if you do open, will that be like a slow ramp up? Do you hope to get back many of your employees or, or how, do you, how do you expect to handle that? Yes and yes. So in our case, our um, reductions on the staff side were just a little less than half of our staff. And uh, we have uh, several still furloughed. And so our bringing back those staff are absolutely correlated with the kind of revenue we expect to bring in over the next many months. So this again is a very careful calculus trying to anticipate our uh, increase in revenue and how that relates to our bringing staff back. I'm I'm super optimistic though. I mean, I it's kind of like Tim said earlier. It's it's hard to be, it's hard to find the right balance between um, uh, you know the devastation that so many have experienced, but to also know that it's important that our institution survives. And so I I am absolutely. I believe we'll open. I don't know when we'll do it when it's safe and right to do so. But I, I think we will be back. It's going to be different. I'm one of those that thinks we're never going back to what we had before. But there's just so much opportunity 
uh, and I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about, about our future. Tim? I think the only thing I would add, Bruce, is that humans are social animals. So we will come back. We're we resilient. Yeah. We, we, we are the social infrastructure that brings our community together. Uh, in our particular case, we had to uh, lay off and furlough two-thirds of our staff. It was sudden. It was painful. It was unnatural. And it happened. Uh, and as we come back, we will be driven by capacity, what the science allows. So when you can have to maintain social distancing and you have to maintain all kinds of things, it drives your capacity way down. So to the extent that we bring people back will be the extent to which literally, physically, legally, scientifically, we can actually bring people into the building. So that will be the governor of how many furlough people come back. And if I might just add another little silver lining in this, um, Tim and I have become fast friends. Others of us in the community have, have really been great uh, at sharing our experiences. While we all have very different um, institutions, I've been uh, deeply moved, actually, by how our community has come together um, uh, to try and, and navigate this path forward. You know, that's very interesting. We do a, 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 we have been doing a weekly talk with an ICU doc at Mass General. And he said that's one of the most amazing things that's come out of it for him. These institutions that often compete against each yeah. other are working together uh, yeah. to try and deal with the crisis. Um, seems like it's happening in a lot of areas. Yeah, definitely happening for us. It's even happening among our own staffs that yeah. didn't particularly <laughs> have to work well together now they're just getting the job done and the hurdles that used to be there have evaporated. The bridges that didn't exist yeah. before have been built. It's really interesting to see if we can continue that post COVID yeah. crisis. Yeah. Well, Tim, Vicki, thank you very much for joining us today. And to all our listeners, we'll see you again next week.